right, so as we uh, continue on, we're in the third part of our, we'll say, modernized, standard look at the Ten Commandments on our evening services here. I want to, I did this Wednesday night, and I'm just going to repeat it tonight for the sake of repeating it, and also just because I feel like it's something that needs to be said on occasion. I am not a perfect person. I know that's just a massive shock to anyone in this room. Yeah, I know, just horribly, horribly devastating news here. So why do I say that? I say that for a couple of reasons. One, I say it just as a confession. I say it because it needs to be said. I specifically was convicted before the service Wednesday night to confess that I am not now, nor have I been off and on throughout my entire Christian walk, the most devoted follower of Jesus. I don't always read my Bible every day. I don't always pray with regularity. And I struggle deeply when I do. I've been no stranger. I've not been terribly shy about <clears throat> things like my battles with depression. And a lot of that stemmed from a feeling of inadequacy. I would see everyone around me looking like they were completely put together, looking like they weren't going through the pain and the struggle and the sorrow that I was going through. Unknowing or unwilling to recognize the fact that they were probably putting forth the same brave face I was. The same no cares, no frills, I'm perfect in God's eyes mentality that I was trying to fake until I made it like everybody else was. Especially from this side of the pulpit, I did not see growing up in a small Southern Baptist church in the outskirts of Hattiesburg. Leadership be willing to admit fault. Be it the pastor, be it the governing bodies, the committees, even to a degree my own parents. I did not see that exception, acceptance of personal failure, the ability to talk about it, the ability to share the struggle not just for their own benefit but for the benefit of those around them. And so I, as part of how God has wired me, God has shaped how I present the Word. I do my best to never present that, to never put forth this perfect shining image. If I'm genuinely struggling with something, I'm going to let you guys know. Because if I can't do that from up here, what's the point of me doing it at all? God has given me this platform, and I believe this is how He wants me to use it. Now, why do I say this? What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, tonight we're talking about the fifth commandment, honoring your parents. So what is the basic point? Well, our greatest struggle is always going to be submitting to someone else's authority. We want to be in control. We want to be the one calling the shots. And so how I 
use my time, how I dictate my personal schedule, is a submission to something. It's a submission to my own will, it's a submission to nothing at all, or it's a submission to God. And so when I confess I'm not as diligent at times in reading the Word, in prayer, in devotion to God, it's admitting that I'm not as good at submitting to God as I should be. So again, you're probably asking, what does this have to do with honor your parents? Well, our first taste of authority is our parents. The first time we have to listen to somebody else, the first part people we engage that have any sort of authority and responsibility over us, it comes from our parents. If we have good parents who use this authority well, use it in the way God intends it to, we tend, and I'll speak in general terms, we tend to grow up respecting authority. On the flip side, if we have parents that in some way misuse or abuse that authority, intentionally or not, or just merely use that authority in a way that is not honoring to how God wants it to be used, we sometimes grow up to distrust authority. We feel like authority is not something worth listening to. Regardless, our view of authority, our view of how we deal with people over us, including God Himself, is formed in some way either as a reaction to or a reaction against how our parents exercise their authority over us. And so, in the, in the commandments in Exodus 20, God tells us, Honor your mother and father, that your days may be long in the land that your God is giving you. Paul takes this and expounds upon it in Ephesians. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, we see this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he goes on to quote the commandment. Honor your father and mother, to which he adds a little commentary. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Why does this have a promise attached to it? Now, if you look at it from a purely Jewish standpoint, the whole law had a promise attached to it. If you'll be my God, I will be your people. Or, I think I got that completely backwards. What I get for going up to I am your God and you are my people. If you obey me, you will live long in the land. Being under the covenant meant being a nation. Living under God's control meant they were able to stay sovereign and living in the land God had given them when they conquered Canaan. So why does honor your father and mother come with the promise you will live long in the land? Beyond just the idea that keeping the law meant keeping the covenant, and keeping the covenant meant keeping the land, I think it boils down to a point that's applicable to everyone, not just Jews living in this time period. Respect for authority that breaks down at home will break down in other parts of life. If we don't honor our parents, if we don't respect their inherent God-given authority over us, we're going to lose that respect for authority from other people. 
In fact, let's look at this a little bit better. Let's narrow this down to the point I think God is making with this commandment. More so than just honoring our parents, God's purpose here is very simple. A society that distrusts authority is going to collapse. Let's look at it. Let's just look at some situational things here. If we distrust authority, if our ability to adhere to authority breaks down, what can happen? Well, if our respect for the law and our respect for those charged with enforcing the law goes away completely, what happens? We don't obey laws. If we don't obey laws, what happens? Well, utter and complete chaos. If we stop driving in a way that adheres to any of the rules the government has put on the, law, on the road, I don't even want to think about what happens. You see what happens on this road out here just in front of the church? Or better yet, get out on 49 at any point of the day and any day of the week? Just Friday, I think, I was driving home from work. So I work on the CB base. I live kind of by Gulfport High. So I literally just a straight shot up past road for me. I cross 49 on a green light, perfectly legal on the first car in the, going through the intersection, and pulling out of, from the left-hand side of the road, this guy completely disregards the fact that there's oncoming traffic, pulls off, veers over to the far right lane to make a right-hand turn. Mind you, when he does this, his car is about from me to the end of the podium from my car. I brake, thank goodness I've got a little bit of a lead foot and pulled out way in front of the guy beside me, so I was able to veer over and get out of this guy's way. Now imagine if literally every car on the road did stuff like that. Our respect for authority affects our ability to function as a society. If your parents abuse their authority and led you to mistrust, respect, and not care for those above you, this is the sort of things that can happen. And I can go on and on. I can go for the rest of the sermon just giving you examples of what collapse would look like. But I think you get the idea. If we don't respect authority, everything we've built from the local community to the nation, to honestly our very modern interconnected world would very quickly fall into nothingness. This is why God wants us to respect our parents, to obey them. However, as with everything else, including some of the greatest gifts God has given us, sin has tainted this. Not everyone has parents they feel are worth listening to. Some of them, honestly, grew up in households that their parents weren't worth listening to. However, we don't get to pick and choose. Sometimes that choice is made for us. We honor not because they're worthy of it, but because we're commanded to. You know what? It's a good thing 
Because imagine if God worked on that same system. If God got to pick and choose who was worthy of his honor, worthy of his love. I can tell you real quick without any thought how many people would fall into that category. None. You know what? We often complain about God being unfair because he doesn't work according to our standards. You know what? You're right. If God was fair, he would be the most terrifying thing we've ever heard of. We respect who we're commanded to because God has commanded us to. We respect authority. In Romans, Paul tells us to listen to the government because the government was ultimately appointed by God. Because again, without institutions of some sort, everything God has built for us would collapse around our ears. Furthermore, God will put difficult people in our lives simply to teach us. And you know what? When you can honor and respect and love someone you really, really, really don't like, you know what you're doing? You're reflecting God. Because if we don't do that, we're no better than everybody else. But if we can love and care and respect those who do not deserve it, we are as much like God as we will ever be. Because He does the same for us. So the real question we have is how do we honor our parents? Well, if you sat under any of my sermons, if you know me, you will know the first thing I'm going to do is talk about the meaning of the word honor. Because I am by, I am by training and by scholarship and by calling a biblical linguist. And so let's dig into this a little bit. The word honor, as defined in Hebrew, means weighty. You want to know the actual Hebrew word? It's kabed. The word kabed shares a common root. In fact, it is the root of the word kabod. Now, the word kabod is an incredibly powerful word in Hebrew. In fact, the absence of kabod is where we get the name ikabod, Abraham's first illegitimate child. What does the name ikabod mean? Where is the glory? Or if you want to put it another way, kabod is often almost universally translated in our English as holy. The word honor means treating something as holy. So first and foremost, the way we show our parents honor is we give weight to what they have to say. When they say something, we listen. When they have something important, when they have advice, when they have something to add to us, give it its due weight. Honor it in a way that says, I'm going to at least consider this. 
Or if you want to put this in even more plain English, we don't take their advice lightly. If you haven't figured it out, congratulations. That is where this phrase comes from. Now, that's a general term. We give weight to them. We don't take them lightly. But let's look a little more specifically at some sages as how this looks. Because honestly, our relationship to our parents is going to vary based on the stage of life we are in. Now, I'm not going to dwell a whole lot on the first two because obviously everyone in this room has passed adolescence. But I'm still going to talk about it because it does relate not only to us, but some of us have young children. And so it relates how we look at them as well. So in childhood, your relationship to your parents is total dependence and obedience. Hey, I got it right. I actually got those reversed last time. We do so because, well, when we're super little, we honestly have no choice. You know, how many infants can completely care for themselves and dictate their own rules? Despite how hard they try. <laughs> I know, having had two back-to-back now, more years ago than I like to acknowledge at times. They love to think they're in control, and boy, do you love to think they are as well. <laughs> Still, they are completely dependent on us. And up to a certain point, they're completely obedient to us. They don't have a lot of free will, free reign at this point. As they grow up to adolescence or into use, we begin to see obedience with responsibility. As they get older, they can start taking on some chores. Greatest day of my life was when the kids learned how to unload the dishwasher. Unfortunately, I have girls, so I doubt I'm ever going to get to the point of learning to mow the lawn. But, you know, I'll take what I can get. That said, I remember spending entire Saturdays mowing the lawn with mom and dad. So, you know, everyone's got their own burden to bear. Recently, my kids have learned how to do laundry. Woo! <laughs> that shaves about five hours a week off my schedule. <laughs> but they start to contribute. They start to pull their own weight a little bit. And it shouldn't be what you get, admittedly, which is the, uh, fine. Or, you know, you tell them 16 times and it's finally on the 17th when the belt comes out that they finally start doing something. In theory, this should be done with a little joy, with a little desire to be a constructive member of the household. Mileage will vary. I'll leave that at be. As we get into adulthood, <clears throat> we start taking on the responsibility first and foremost. But we give deference to our parents. That is deference with an E, meaning to defer it means you still give them some weight. You still give them that due respect. But it also means you have to take responsibility for your own actions. Especially as in adulthood, you start moving out on your own. You start having to take care of yourself in a real, genuine way. But how many of us, shortly after moving out on our own, something went to absolute pot and we called screaming, crying to mom and dad? Because that's what you do you're still deferring as you learn to get up on your own feet. It means giving them that extra weight I was just talking about. 
When you have a decision to make, listen to what they have to say. With adulthood, for most people, also comes marriage. Now, marriage adds another complication to this because now you've got to temper that honor and respect. Before, the calculus, the arrangement of your personal hierarchy should have went something like God, your parents, and then you, and everything else around it. However, if we live out our command, specifically the command of Genesis, that a man should leave his father and mother, cleave fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. If we're going to give that the weight it desires, what God commands of us in the marriage relationship, the spouse has to supplant the parents. It doesn't mean the parents get thrown out of the equation. It simply means they get bumped down to third place. God still remains first. God should never be anything but first. I shouldn't even have to say that. But obviously I do, given my earlier confession. Your spouse should come second. Your spouse should be your first point of advice. They should be the first person you seek counsel with after prayer. But again, you still honor your parents by listening to what they have to say. Doesn't mean you have to listen, but it means you at least have to hear them out. Couples that can't make this break cleanly and correctly will find their marriage not as solid as it could be. Where one or both members of the couple do not make that clean break with their parents, continue to allow the parents to have unbiblical authority in their lives, it affects the sanctity of that marriage, and it affects the genuineness of that relationship. To the point that I've heard many people say that if they can't, if that break can't be made, you're honestly not ready for marriage anyway. Yet, I know a lot of people, we all have seen it, where it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Now, I know we don't like to think about this, but our parents are going to eventually age. They're going to get older. As that happens, our role goes from supported to supporter. We go from receiving the care of our parents to begin caring for our parents. And this is not something that we take lightly. James 1.27, very familiar passage to this body of believers. It's the namesake of the J127 ministry. James writes this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is saying that our job is to take care collectively those who have no one else to take care of them. Now, what's the unsaid portion of this? Well, the unsaid portion of this is 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We are called to take care of those closest to us. In fact, I think James has a very personal reason for saying this. 
Who is James? James was the brother of Jesus. What does that make his relationship to Mary? He was also Mary's son. What do we know about Mary? Well, pretty much every scholar out there believes, based on the fact that we never hear hide nor hair of Joseph after the temple incident where Jesus runs off and talks to the scholars. Pretty much everyone believes that at some point between then and before Jesus takes on his ministry, Joseph has already passed on. Now, when James is writing, Jesus has already ascended. We know James didn't come to faith till after most of the events of Acts. Which means his father is not there to take care of his mother. It also means his eldest brother is not there to take care of his mother. Which means his mother is a widow. This hits home to James because he understands exactly what this means. But if you want to see this played out, let's look to Jesus himself. John 19, in the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus says these words. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Man, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Put that in perspective. Jesus, in the midst of carrying out the single greatest command God has ever given anything in this universe, the single greatest thing God has ever done for us besides the creation itself, What does he do? He takes a moment to make sure his mother is cared for. Again, giving evidence to the fact that his earthly father was no longer there. In fact, let me put this a little further. In the middle of dying, the most painful death the world had ever known at that point excruciating pain. Literally, the word excruciating comes from the Latin excrucis, which is crucifixion. Crucifixion is the word we use to describe the most extreme pain we can ever experience. Excruciating is being crucified. Jesus looks down, sees his mother, and make sure one of his best friends takes care of her. Not anybody. John himself, one of the three closest men to Jesus in his life, the only disciple at the foot of the cross, he took the person he trusted more than anybody else on this earth and said, take care of my mother. And what did John do? He honored that. How much less should we expect of ourselves? We 
have to take care of our folks. Now, in today's disconnected society, that does not mean simply paying for a nursing home, making sure medical bills are paid for. In fact, at any point after you leave the house, if your parents are still around, talk to them, call them, visit them. Does not matter what it takes. Put them in your life. I saw this growing up all the time because we lived, my parents grew up in a small farming town in southeast Arkansas. Dad, looking for opportunities to just better himself and his family, moved off. Now, my grandparents, with the exception of my mother's mother, never really came and saw us. But we made at least two trips a year up there to see them because my parents were going to honor their parents, and they were going to make sure we, as the grandchildren, spent time with not just our grandparents, but our aunts and uncles and our cousins. Despite a six-hour difference in travel between them, we stayed invested in our family's lives. I can't tell you how many years where our vacations were just trips to see family. But at the same time, that instilled in me a realization. I didn't get this till much later in life. That they were obeying this commandment. They were honoring their parents by being involved in their lives, even if the parents weren't making the same effort to be in theirs. And this has influenced my parents to this day. They refuse to not be a part of mine and my daughter's lives. Because they saw what their parents did with them. They will can. Now, granted, they live in Hattiesburg. I live here. It's not like it's that far away. It's, you know, a little over an hour. But they could be halfway across the country or the globe, and I promise you, we would still make that commitment both ways. And you know what? I never once, until preparing for this message, put that to this text. But isn't that exactly what it is? It's honoring family. This is what we're supposed to do. So as we move into the back half of this, I want to just take a moment and look about, look at some, I'll call them whatabouts. You know, what about this? What about that? Well, <clears throat> first question. What about when your parents are wrong? What about when you've given their advice, or they give you advice, and it's not the advice you need? Well, honoring your parents doesn't mean being their slave. You know, once you're able to get up and take care of yourself to a degree, you get to choose whether you obey or not. Just like we are with God, we can choose who and what we obey. Now, that doesn't mean we're right or wrong, it just means we have a choice. Each context determines right or wrong. But despite what you, or more in particular they, think, they can be wrong. They're not guaranteed to be completely correct all the time. You know, the only person we can say that about is God himself. More importantly, they can be wrong when they're being loving, caring, and generally concerned for us. 
In fact, we see this a lot. If you're following God the way you're supposed to, you're going to come across this in one way or another. Because God has this real love, and I think Tony really nailed that point home this morning. God's going to call us to places that go anywhere on the scale from uncomfortable to outright dangerous. God is going to take the hardest path for us. Guess what that does to your loved ones? When God calls you across town to a new church, it may not be that big of a deal. When God calls you to a hostile place like, say, China, to become a missionary, preaching the gospel in a place where it is a punishable offense to the point of death. That's a different story. Our parents' natural concern for us make even the godliest of people fear for our safety. They will question your desire simply because it sounds dangerous. And you know what you do in that situation? You hear those fears because they're real. God puts people in our lives to challenge us. God puts people in our lives to make it a little harder, to make us take a step back and really make sure this is what we want to do, make sure this is what God wants us to do. Once again, let's look at Jesus. In Mark, he records a couple of instances where Jesus' family isn't super happy with them. So Mark 3, both of these occur in 3, 21 and 31. And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then a little bit later down, it says his mother and his brothers came. Again, back to my point, you don't hear anything about Joseph right there, just his mothers and brothers. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Jesus was saying radical things. Jesus was saying and doing things way outside the norm for Jewish culture at that point. His family, his mother, his brothers, his friends that weren't with the disciples were all of the opinion he was making an utter and complete fool of himself. So what do you do when someone's making an utter and complete fool of yourself? You tell them to come inside and sit down and shut up. That's exactly what his friends and family were doing. Not because they were in any way trying to stifle God's will, not because they had some demonic possession that was making them oppose God. They were looking at someone they loved and cared about and just didn't get the significance of what he was doing. And so they tried to stop it. Not out of any malicious intent, but out of pure, unbridled love and concern for them. And probably a little selfishness as well, because, you know, if you're embarrassing your family, you are embarrassing your family. So they are getting a little backlash from this as well. So how do we stop, how do we keep, from, keep this from happening? Well, let's look at the other side of the equation. We've talked about our relationship to our parents. Well, with every biblical mandate, there's a side that's unspoken that's just as powerful. 
We honor our children by being parents worthy of their honor. Just as we are mandated to honor our parents with no qualifications, we do our children the greatest honor by being parents steeped in the Scripture, powered by God, and worthy of the honor they should be giving us. You cannot change your relationship with your parents. You cannot change how they raised you. However, if you have children on this side of heaven, you can change how you relate to them. Nothing short of them going to glory before you will change that. It is never too late to try to reconcile any relationship. Our parents were supposed to be our first taste of God's goodness. We are in turn supposed to be our children's first taste of God's goodness. We must reflect God property by using our authority over them in a godly manner. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you three basic guardrails to keep in place, no matter where you are in your relationship, be it tiny children to fully grown adults. Here are three ways we can try our best to honor this. The first one is with wisdom. Wisdom is one of God's greatest gifts for us. It is something we typically don't make enough use of. I, for one, have been given incredible intelligence and a ton of knowledge, and boy, does that usually mean you don't have a lot of wisdom. I am be the first to admit I am not the wisest person in the world. But wisdom tells us we should treat each child and each situation that child finds himself in as unique. Look at Proverbs. Solomon, to this date, considered the wisest man to ever live, told us, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Notice what that says. Train up a child in the way he should go. He doesn't say train your children. He says train a child. Each child is different. Wisdom then tells me that we must deeply and intimately know our children to best help them. In the same way God in his wisdom does with us. Now if you've ever met my daughters, you know they are polar opposites. Emma Kate, my oldest, is for better or for worse, and I will probably say more for the worse than the better, she is me done over. She is calm, except when she is incredibly violently emotional. She is rational, except when she is incredibly and violently emotional. She is logical, except when she is incredibly and violently emotional. Boy, is she me. <laughs> If she's calm, I can talk to her because I know how to talk to her because I can talk to myself. And if you've ever been in a room by myself, if you've ever seen me in a room by myself, I talk to myself. I am one of those people that thinks out loud when no one else is around. When other people are around, you can't get me to talk at all. 
I'm weird, I admit it. Imitate also is pretty tough. She's kind of a tomboy. She's rough. She, she does martial arts for crying out loud. That's her extracurricular thing. I can pick that girl up and throw her across the room and she'd laugh at me. If I look at my younger daughter, Charlotte, though, she's sweet. She's innocent. She's calm. She's kind. Her emotions are a raw, bleeding nerve about, I'm not even sure it's under her skin. Emma Kate, like I said, I can pick her up and throw her and it wouldn't, uh, she'd laugh. If I look at Charlotte sternly, I don't even think I need to be stern. I think if I just look at her and she knows she's done something wrong, she will break into tears. Wisdom tells me I've got to treat them differently. I can't stare menacingly at Emma Kate. All she'll do is look at me like what? Come on. I can't logically explain stuff to Charlotte because she's an emotionally driven person. I don't even have to raise my hand to her. Like I said, if I look at her just, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm not even trying to be mean. And she'll break into tears. I've got to treat them differently because God created them differently. Wisdom tells us when to intervene. Wisdom tells us when we should step in and protect them from what's going on around the world. Wisdom also tells us when not to, when to let them fail. Wisdom tells us sometimes, just like God, we have to protect them, and sometimes we have to let them learn for themselves. Just as God will let us fail to learn a lesson, we too must let our children learn to fall as well as fly. This is hard, especially in today's society. We don't let our kids fail at anything. You know what? It is getting bad enough that I am seeing people who should be on the completely protect and engulf and bubble child every child on the planet, realizing we are doing more harm than good with this. I've read a couple of fantastic books written by some of the most left-leaning liberal scholars in the fields of psychology and sociology, and they are absolutely condemning this coddling mentality, because we have created a generation, in fact, at this point, generations of people who cannot fend for themselves because they never learn to fail. They never learn to fall. Wisdom tells us to let it happen, but when we do, we must be like God. You don't just let them fall on their face. You're there to help them pick up the pieces, to love them, to care for them, to do what you can, and the last thing you ever try to say to a child when this happens is, I told you so. 
just as God will let us fall and to pick us back up, we have to do the same with our children. So that's wisdom. Second area I want to talk about is sufficiency. Tale as old as time, sufficiency. Specifically, sufficiency in God. God developed us in a way that He is the only thing that will truly satisfy us. There is nothing on this earth that will fill the God-shaped and God-sized hole in our soul. We have to rely on God's sufficiency so that we don't try to put other things in that place. We can try to put anything from status to money to possessions to substances to fill that hole. Sadly, one thing that comes up all too often across all societies, across all cultures, across all times, parents try to fill the void in their soul with their children. We should teach our children to learn from our mistakes. We should move them past our insufficiencies. We should let them not do the things we did that we don't want them to do. However, your child is never going to give you the career you wanted. He is never going to love you the way God loves you. Your child can never be the you that you regret not becoming. The one and only thing your child should ever strive to be and the only thing you should ever push them to be is who God created them to be. Nothing they do is going to make up for something you did or did not. Only God can fill that void. Only God can mend that hurt. We have to let our children be children. And we have to let them be themselves. So how do you tie all this together? You tie it together with love. Love is the greatest. Love is the binder. No matter what we do, no matter who we save, no matter what we praise, no matter what we say from any point in our existence, if we do so without love, it is nothing. Love teaches us how to use our authority without manipulation. Love teaches us how to do all this stuff the way God intended it to be done. Without love... Authority becomes authoritarian. It becomes destructive. Without love, we will abuse and misuse the authority God has given us. Without love, we will overstretch our, ourselves. Anything we do that is above or beyond is abuse. If love does not guide it, it will cause us to make mistakes. 
one of the greatest mistakes I see in particular in Christian households is this. We must never push our children into things, especially salvation, if God's hand is not in it. We can try our best to give our children the love and care they need. We can do everything we can, but if in trying to secure their soul, we push them forward to make a prayer that they were not prepared to make, that God was not prompting them to make, it will mean nothing. How many people do you know question their salvation as adults because they never had that real prompt when they were children, but through the emotions of a moment, peer pressure, or pressure from the parents, they came forward, they did all the right steps on this side. They talked to the pastor, they got baptized, they said all the right words like it's some magical incantation. It's not. God alone is the one who determines when someone's ready. God alone is the one who will actually do the salvific work. If we push them too hard, they will make a decision that was never theirs to make. And we will thoroughly and completely mess them up for years to come because they will think they're in a relationship with God they are not. We have to let God's wisdom, God's love, and God's sufficiency dictate how we treat our children. Because we are his children and he is the good father. Every possible thing we need to know about being parents, we can and should learn from him and him alone. So what do we do about the elephant in the room? The final but what about question. What do we do about parents who are utterly and completely unworthy? What do we do about parents that are really, really unworthy of your respect, have done nothing to earn it, and in fact, have done everything in their power to lose it? Well, the answer is obvious, the answer is plain, and the answer is the hardest one we can hear. We honor them anyway. Look at Jonathan, the book of 1 Samuel. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. Jonathan is the best friend and honestly makes no difference brother of King David. He's in an interesting spot because as the firstborn son of the king, he should be the next king of Israel. Yet, he knows his best friend David is the anointed next king. And you know what he does? He rejoices with his friend. But where does that put him? That puts him in direct opposition with his father. He goes on record in 1 Samuel 20, 
This is King Saul talking to Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse, David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. True enough. He's not lying to his son. That's true. David is keeping Jonathan off the throne. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. And I love this. Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And you know how Saul responds to this? It's a famous story. Saul grabs a spear and tries to pin his own son to the wall for defending his best friend. Does Jonathan defy his father here? Yes, because his father is acting against God's will. Jonathan makes sure David escapes to become the king God anointed him to be. But you know what Jonathan does for the rest of his life? He obeys his father and he obeys his king so long as it does not directly conflict with God. To the point that he dies in a foolish battle that they should never have been a part of because his father and his king asked him to. Jonathan had every right, every reason not to listen to Saul. But so long as Saul did not directly contravene God, Jonathan honored him. That is the example we should have. God's commands are absolute. We should obey them for no other reason than they come from God. If God is who we say he is, if God is who we pronounce him to be, this should be the case no matter what. But let me give you an extra incentive. Let me give you a little more reason beyond the simple fact that God is God as to why we should listen to him. We reflect God to our children. Sometimes God calls us to reflect him back to our parents. Sometimes we're in a position where the only way they can see God is through us. By honoring and respecting them when they know they don't deserve it, it shows them God's love. It shows them God's care. If it helps, look at imperfect parents as being simply incomplete. What they did not have they in turn could not share with you. They did not in some way have God's love, God's sufficiency, or God's wisdom, or some combination of any or all three. They simply didn't have it to give to you. So why don't we in turn show that to them? What greater way can we honor our parents than giving them the relationship with God they have not had before. Just as God is always willing to forgive us, just as God is willing to welcome us back, we should be willing to forgive and reconcile ourselves with each other. If we can do that with strangers, if we can do that with other people in our lives, how much more should be we willing to do that with our parents. To me, there is no greater honor than to honor those who don't deserve it.
Why? Because God does it to every single one of us every day. Let's pray.